I saw them bringing the bread in this morning. Is this thing working? Okay, let's try again. Can you give me uh, just a little bit more, Ivan, so I can hear myself? Thanks. Saw them bringing the bread in this morning. And uh, there's really, really a lot. (laughs) So don't be bashful about going out there and getting the bread. Today is the ninth talk in our series on Christian sexuality in the sex-crazed world. And today I'd like to talk about a Christian response to homosexuality. All in one talk. One of our problems all along has been, you know, that uh, the material that we've developed is so much more than what we can say in one talk. So we'll try to cover the basic things, at least. And to begin with, I'd like to read a life story from a man named Morgan Davis, which you can find at the Desert Streams website. Here's Morgan's story. Freedom from homosexuality is real. I bear witness of this truth in my own life. As early as I can remember, I idolized other boys. I felt other than male or boy. I didn't identify myself as female, but just different than the rest of the guys. As years went by, my internal obsession with my own gender turned sexual. Not fitting in brings opportunities to acquire, of course, more labels. And so shame grew in me, as well as isolation. I needed to find a way to fit in. By high school, I had adapted by becoming the image of what I perceived others would accept. And I entered college with the hope of snapping out of this inner conflict. I dated women, yet I had so little to offer relationally. My true interest was in a special male friend. And before long, this relationship turned very emotionally dependent and finally sexual. Horrified of what was happening, I ended the friendship, covered in shame. Unable to confess the confusion of my gender gender identity and homosexual feelings, I began living a double life. Keeping my outward image pleasing to family and friends, I silently harbored emotionally dependent and sexual relationships with other men. Eventually, I was convinced my internal needs could only be met through illicit sex, and I quickly became addicted to the rush of feeling good and being wanted through sex. This lifestyle continued for five years. After college, God gave me a gift, a trusted friend. His vulnerability and transparency cut through my layers of shame and defensiveness. One day, he asked me if I thought I was gay. No one had ever asked. Believing his trustworthiness, I was honest. This quickly led me in a direction of hope. I entered therapy. The counseling went on for about six months, and significant inroads were made, and I experienced intimacy with Christ. My therapist's insight brought to light great brokenness in my family relationships. My inability to emotionally connect with my father, even though his physical presence was available to me, created deep wounds of abandonment and feelings of shame as his son. My identification with my mother became my sole emotional outlet, confusing my identity as a man. I felt like an extension of her. Finally, being able to clearly see these vexing deceptions for what they were gave me new vision for change. Quietly, healing began. Karen and I were married two years later. 
During our engagement, I briefly shared my past homosexual struggles and failures. Still steeped in shame, I was unable and unwilling to talk about the past. I allowed no time for questions, ever. So I went down the aisle hoping for the best and believing the past was truly behind us, or behind me. The strains of marriage revealed great insecurity inside me, and I began to see my deficiencies as a husband and as a man. In fear of true intimacy with Karen, I looked for something to ease the pain. And within our first year of marriage, I began seeking illicit gay relationships and acting out sexually with other men. This addiction continued for six years. I tried many ways to sanitize my sin. For starters, I went into full-time youth outreach ministry. And secondly, we began a family. Keeping the appearance of health was my ultimate goal. For years on end, I was convinced I could stop this destructive behavior. Whenever the condemning voice of my mind would heap shame and guilt, I would have to fight depression and suicidal options on my own. I cried out to God time and again, but I could not trust him anymore. I'd fallen back into hopelessness and sin. Aloneness was all I felt. Internal wrath became my companion, and I honestly believed I had to make it on my own. And the more years I tried, the more years I failed. In the midst of this chaos, however, God's presence was evident. I see this now. Slowly, I began to trust, to trust God, to trust Karen. The brokenness became more acute in me, and I began to make bolder moves to ease the pain and the conflict inside. It almost seemed that any step I made toward opening myself up to God was met with greater attack from the enemy. Even so, seeing Jesus' love for the poor affected me deeply, and I had a small hope that Jesus could reach me. The summer of 1995, my prayer life changed dramatically. Prayers like, Your will be done in my life, Lord, and do whatever it takes in me, Jesus, had never been spoken before. They frightened me. They were too costly. But the stakes for my life and marriage were higher. I needed Jesus desperately. That fall, I entered seminary. The focus of the first class was community. Required reading included the book Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Needing to complete the book, I told Karen I was needing to study at the library. In truth, I was going out. In the midst of this sinful and risky behavior, I became frightened. I saw myself spiraling out of control and going to new depths. Yet in my spirit, I knew God was calling out to me. Something was different. It was as if I could actually hear the voice of God. Will you stop running? Later that evening, I went to a coffee shop and pulled out the Bonhoeffer book. And the last chapter began... He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Tears began to fall as I read, a lot of tears. Never before had I felt so alone. And the text continued, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the chapter then unveils the need and the power of confession. It was as if I had never heard this truth before. And again, my spirit heard the Lord's voice, Will you stop hiding? By the grace of God, I made a call to a dear friend, and I confessed my sin and brokenness to him. Jesus was with me. I was encouraged to talk with Karen, and the next day, my confession to her changed our lives forever. Exposed before her, 
my perfected image died. Our friends surrounded us, and we were directed to seek help through Desert Stream Ministries. The Lord's faithfulness to Karen and me was present through our community. We were loved and supported. These friends understood brokenness and sin. They were not afraid of the mess that laid before them. Karen and I were blessed with opportunities to receive healing. Our counsel was to seek healing for ourselves first, then in time seek healing for the marriage. Everything seemed to get worse before it got better. Much healing and forgiveness was extended, but the Lord's protection and provision was evident, and his healing hand was and continues to be upon us. The truth I learned about my homosexual affections has helped me immensely. In the end, knowing Jesus has brought the healing of my soul. Now, a lot of people in our culture would have trouble with that story. The message that we hear every day almost is that the real problem here is that Morgan was refusing to admit that he was a homosexual. The message we hear again and again is that if he would just accept who he is and society would just accept who he is, then everything would be all right. Just in the last couple of weeks, I read in the papers a question you'll probably hear again and again about the question. It expresses kind of the common view. Why should we get upset over who someone loves? Or what's wrong with the world can't be about who we choose to love. The messages that we're continually bombarded with are that since homosexuals were born that way, then their acceptance as normal in the life of the community and even the church is really an issue of civil rights. So what is the Christian response? How are we to understand homosexuality and respond to the people among us who struggle with homosexual attractions? What does the Bible say? That's what we're going to begin with this morning. We're going to look at two passages only. First, one line from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. And then a longer passage from the New Testament from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1 beginning at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion." Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. 
And they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. First of all, it's clear that homosexual acts are strongly, universally condemned in the scripture. Uh, the passage in Leviticus is found right in the midst of other such things as incest, bestiality, and child sacrifice. Now, it doesn't say that the people who do these things are an abomination, but it says that the acts are. They are serious. The motives for doing these things aren't even mentioned. Neither in the Old or the New Testament is motive ever even considered. There are several passages, not just the ones that we looked at, which flatly condemn all homosexual acts, with no hedges, no conditions, no exceptions. Now, if you look around, you'll find some people who've tried to explain these passages away. But the mental gymnastics necessary to explain them away really aren't very believable. You really have to contort the scripture and contort yourself to do it. It doesn't really settle, however, the question of how to understand the person who finds themselves sexually attracted to people of the same sex. The problem is that Scripture doesn't really understand the modern category of sexual orientation. It doesn't look at it that way. It simply talks about acts, not orientation. What's more, in the Scripture, sexuality in whatever direction never becomes the basis for defining a person's identity or the basis for finding meaning and fulfillment in life. Again, modern inventions. In fact, even in the studies that we have secularly, the, the surveys and whatnot, they can't decide, really, who is really a homosexual because they can't agree on the criteria. There's a great debate about what causes homosexuality, whether it's somehow genetic or a result of a social psychological process in childhood, and there's an endless array of articles on the subjects. But consider this. Even if it could be shown to be a result of genetic programming, that would still not make homosexual behavior morally be appropriate. Not all genetic traits are good or desirable. For example, there's a considerable body of evidence that suggests that some people are born with a predisposition to alcoholism. In fact, a much larger degree of evidence than there would be in regards to homosexuality. But that doesn't mean that we endorse alcoholic behavior. Alcoholic behavior remains destructive, regardless of its source. Whether we speak of it as a disease and encourage those afflicted by it to get treatment, including the practice of complete abstinence from alcohol. That's something like the way the Bible speaks of homosexual behavior. Regardless of its origin, regardless of the motive, the act is destructive and to be avoided. But why? Why does the scripture condemn homosexuality? What does it matter? What should be so wrong with who one chooses to love? And that's our second point. And that is this. 
The problem is that homosexual relationships cannot fulfill God's intention in sexuality. If you dial back, and we've talked about this before, about God's purposes in sexuality and in marriage, you would remember that God's intention is for the sexual relationship in marriage to be one that draws us out of ourselves into an intimate and vulnerable relationship with someone who is other but complementary. The human is not whole and complete, not one flesh, except as male and female. It's a key part of God's whole creative plan. God created man in his image, male and female. He created them. The difference, and yet complementarity, is crucial to the healthy and proper outworking of God's plan. It doesn't really work if it's not somebody who is complementary and yet different. What is more, Christian marriage is an icon, a sign of the true God's love and fidelity to his people, a sign of the love relationship between Christ and his church. Christ and his church are not the same, but they belong together. And what is more, the sexual relationship is intended to produce children. And on all these accounts, on all those purposes, the homosexual act cannot fulfill God's purposes. It falls short. Third thing is that there's very strong evidence that homosexuality is a result of brokenness. In fact, that is the view of the scripture. It's the result of the general sin in the world. If you take a minute to really look at this Romans passage, there's an amazing statement. If you read it superficially, you might miss it. It does not say that homosexuality is the cause of God's wrath. It is not the cause of God's wrath. Rather, it says, it is the result of God's wrath. God is not angry at those who are attracted to the same sex so much as God is angry at all mankind who rejects him and his love and power to try to become their own God. The chief sin is idolatry, self-idolatry becoming our own God. And it says he's angry because they refuse to acknowledge God and give him thanks. And the result of that was that they came into a place of darkness and confusion. God's wrath takes the ironic form of allowing rebellious mankind the freedom to have their own way. See, hell is really when God says, have it your way and abandons us to our own devices. And that's the wrath that God takes. And so the irony of sin plays itself out. The creature's original impulse towards self-glorification ends in self-destruction. That's what's described in that passage in Romans. The refusal to acknowledge God as creator ends in a blind distortion of the creation. And so the rebellion against God is eventually seen in the perversion of sexual distinctions that are fundamental to God's creative design. None of this, however, is meant to explain how a particular person comes to have sexual attractions. The Apostle Paul is speaking of the general human condition. He says, this is in the world. This brokenness is in the world because the world has rejected God. And this is a sign of that world gone wrong. Mankind reaps the results of that rebellion and a whole host of problems, one of which is homosexual activity. And that could mean perhaps 
failures in the genetic process are more likely a failure in the psychological processes of growing up. As I've studied this and read stories, if I've read so many stories of people who were homosexuals, what I've heard over and over again is that for some reason as a child, they were unable to identify properly or fully with their parents of the same sex. Sometimes it's an overt rejection or hatred of the same sex, but sometimes it's simply a subtle inability to connect. But the result of that inability to connect with the parent of the same sex leaves behind a deep unmet need, an identity need. And so the boy has a great need to recover the masculine that he's not getting by connection with his father, or the girl has a great need to recover the feminine that she's not getting from her mother. Sometimes, even while they are outwardly rejecting femininity or masculinity, and the need it becomes sexualized. And so the boy's sexual attraction to other men is an expression of his inner need to recover his own masculinity. Here's how one woman describes it, and she tells her own story of being led into lesbianism. She says, I grew up in a home where both my mother and father favored my brother. In everything, I was compared to him unfavorably. As I watched and listened to my mother and father interact and comment, I began to form a low opinion of women. The messages I received from my father were that women are weak, stupid, supposed to look sexy, and that they are to serve men. One of his favorite sayings was that my mother couldn't find her way out of a wet paper bag. The messages I received from my mother were that women are only as good as they look and that they are manipulative and unpredictable. As a result, she was disconnected from her mother. Girls disconnected from their mothers often began to hate their emotions and all the other internal things that make them women. So I vowed that I would never be like my mother. I'd never be under the control of a man, never be dependent on a man, never be weak, never admit my vulnerability. In my case, this hatred of the feminine cut me off from men, from women, from God, and even from myself. I hated men. I hated women. I hated myself for being a woman. What I find interesting is that in so many cases, what is reported is that the core of the homosexual feelings is not love, as the propaganda would have you believe, but rather hatred and rejection and aloneness and especially self-hatred. Is it any wonder then that God stands against it? But there's more, because the thing that we must also realize is that Christians are not to judge. It says we are not to judge because we all struggle with the very real sin of refusing God. Just as we're about to all get on the bandwagon after Paul's listed all these horrible things and judge everybody engaged in the deeds of wickedness, the apostle catches us and he says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. The truth is that at some level or other, there is not one of us that has not given a significant part of our own life in one way or another rejecting God, refusing to thank him, or trying to be our own God. 
we sometimes call it wanting to be in control. And we may have been good on the outside, but on the inside, at the core, we're the same. And so he tells us, you really have no place in which to judge. It may have had different outcomes. The brokenness in you might have been different, but you're in no place to judge. And the self-righteous judgment of homosexuality is itself also sinful in a similar way as the homosexual behavior itself. We should never presume that we are above God's judgment. The truth is, all of us stand in radical need of God's mercy. And one of the problems in our culture right now is that it's difficult to think, say the things I've already said today and not be put in the same camp as those who pick it with signs, saying, you know, all gay people are going to hell. But as Christians, we're called to love, not judgment. You know, right after the September 11th attacks, one prominent Christian minister goes on national media and says, this attack happened because of all the gays in this country. That was a grievous statement. I could not believe how judgmental and hurtful that was. No wonder so many people with that kind of brokenness, so many people who are struggling with homosexual attractions are reluctant to even listen to the church, let alone look to the church for help. This is not what God planned. And so we are not to live in judgment. Not even of those who at the moment have given themselves completely over to their broken attractions and homosexual behaviors. We don't approve of what they do, but we must love them, recognizing they are more like us than different. And as Christians, we should be caring and sensitive and understanding of all the brokenness in the world while working to bring change and healing. And coincidentally, I think the normal civil rights of all people, things like the right to a job or to rent or buy a house or to use public facilities or stores or services, Christians should be in the forefront of defending that for anybody, regardless of their sexual brokenness. But if we're also to love them, then that means in compassionate ways we call homosexuals, along with all the people, to join the rest of us in a path towards healing and freedom, in a path towards God, in a path towards learning his ways. It's not love to encourage someone to wrap their whole identity in their sexuality. It's not love to leave the inner rejections and the self-hatred untouched. It's not love to stand by with an easy tolerance while somebody self-destructs their life. It's not love to accept anything less than God's best for any of our fellow men and women. What love is, is giving this next message, and that is that there's a measure of healing available for those who struggle with homosexual attraction and lots of grace. In the story I read at the beginning, Morgan Davis asserted that he'd found healing. And many others who've struggled with homosexual attractions have found healing in Christ. We've had many of those men and women in our church right here over the years. I've known many of them. Some have been leaders. And they've worked hard and they've spent time dealing with their families and understanding their past, coming into the freedom that Jesus gives, learning to put their identity in Christ and not in their brokenness. And as a result 
finding release from compulsions and bondages that had held them before. Many of them have ended up having successful marriages, children, and significant ministry. That doesn't always mean that they never feel homosexual attractions again. It's not like a magic wand that just wipes out entirely the the whole past and the brokenness that's happened in our families. God could do that, but it usually doesn't work quite that way. But it means that they live without compulsion and without the pain, without the drive. They can make choices. And in this life... We all find that we're a new creation in Christ, but the work is not yet done. Jesus is changing our lives. He's healing our hearts, each and every one of us. But the kingdom, the rule of God, is, not, is here but not yet fully. We see a measure of God's promise, but not all of it. Our full deliverance from the body of sin, from the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in our own heart and mind awaits the resurrection, our great hope when we will all be resurrected to be who we were always meant to be. In that day, all our sin, all our handicaps, all our brokenness will be wiped out. But in the meantime, we must all struggle to live faithfully before God. And for those with homosexual attractions, that might mean exercising the choice not to express their sexuality in anything other than Christian marriage. That might mean a life of celibacy. Now, the mass culture will try to give you the illusion that sexual gratification is a sacred right and celibacy is a fate worse than death. Not so. I'm thankful for and proud of the folks in this congregation who have dealt with their homosexual struggle before God and with God and determined to live their life as a child of God. They have meaningful relationships They have meaningful service, they have fulfillment in Christ, and they don't have to engage in broken sexuality. And I'm proud of their commitment to live righteous lives before God in spite of the messages of our culture, and I applaud them. Let's have the band come up. One last point, and that is this. Authentic involvement in Christian community is God's chief tool for freedom. That's the tragedy of the alienation that has emerged from judgmentalism between the church and those who are homosexually attracted. At the root, many of our sexual problems are relational problems. And as we've heard again and again in this series, many begin to find healing in the Christian community. In the words of one who struggled with homosexual attractions, a man named Gary, he put it this way, Are homosexuals to be excluded from the community of faith? Certainly not. But anyone who joins such a community should know that it's a place of transformation, of discipline, of learning, and not merely a place to be comforted or indulged. And in that place, we can be find healing. And that's what we all need. Let's stand and we're going to respond to God in closing song.